Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. This is the second part of the episode of Tyler Witt, a girl who engaged the services of her boyfriend to murder her mother. If you haven't heard part one, you might want to go back and do that right now. In part one, you'll learn about Tyler and her relationship with her mother, Joanne. We also take you through the deceptive romance Tyler entered into that abruptly ended with her being found naked in a secret sex room and how things again went sideways. You don't want to miss it. Joanne knew she didn't trust her daughter, but she didn't know everything. She didn't know that at night, after she fell asleep, Tyler and Boston would sneak some time together. They also began having sex in the house again while Joanne was at work. On May 17th, so just three days after she had forged that agreement with Boston, mm-hmm. Tyler went to hang out with her friends and to see Boston on the sneak and decided not to bother responding when Joanne called and texted looking for her. Of course, Joanne was immediately convinced that Tyler was out seeing Boston and this didn't set well with her. It dragged on long enough that Joanne suspected Tyler had run away with Boston. Tyler's luck had run out. Joanne made good on her promise and called the police to make a complaint against Boston for statutory rape, asking them to help her find her daughter whom she feared had run away with her rapist. She related the story of how when she'd returned home early the day after being assured that nothing was going on, she'd clearly interrupted a sexual tryst between Tyler and Boston, finding Tyler naked and hiding in that furnace room. When Tyler called to be picked up that night, the police were at the house talking to her mother. That's what's so crazy. She literally has to call her mom to get a ride. She's 14. Yeah, and she's running around. This is just so incongruous. Mm-hmm. It's... I don't know how she was missing the clues. You are a child. Yeah, like you are not old enough to be doing these things and making these choices. You can't even drive. Right, but Boston is also missing the clues. He strikes a deal with someone to keep himself out of prison and then is mad. Yeah, when he doesn't follow it and she follows through. Mm Mm-hmm, which is what we're coming up to. So anyway, the police showed up in place of her mother to give her a ride home, which did not please her. They interviewed her all the way home, and they also located Boston and interviewed him. Both kids maintained that nothing had ever happened between them. Joanne was just a crazy mother who'd misread a situation and gone all hysterical on them. Both of them admitted, yes, they were very close, almost like siblings. Tyler had actually gone into that furnace room to change into a dress she wanted to show Boston. She'd gone in there to avoid being naked in front of him. Oh, the police said. They informed Joanne there wasn't enough evidence to charge Boston because both kids had said it wasn't true. You know, 19-year-old boarders let the 14-year-old daughter of the house into their secret sex closet filled with drugs and sex toys for all sorts of innocent reasons. 
That's ridiculous. And also, like, this is a, a small point, but, like, you don't need to take off your bra and underwear to try on a dress. Maybe we need to see that dress. I know. I'm like, <laughs> okay, cops, come on. Another 14-year-old not dressed appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But my goodness, like... I mean, panty lines, come on. <sighs> I guess so. But it really, if for every charge of statutory rape, you had to have both of them saying, oh, yes, we definitely had sex, no one would ever be charged. No, they wouldn't at all. But Tyler was furious with her mother. She was tired of having to talk to the police. And when she got home, she got fairly physical with Joanne. She was screaming at her and hurting her while yelling, Call the police. Call the police and have them come get me. Then I won't have to be here anymore. And when Joanne refused to call the police on her own abusive daughter, Tyler, well, just listen for yourself. This recording is brought to you courtesy of CBS News. 14. That's so sad. You can hear how sad her mom is at the end and how scared she is. Yes, it's very evident that Tyler is the abuser in this relationship. Yeah, and like she didn't want to get her in trouble, but I feel like what happened from what I've seen and like read about domestic violence, I feel like Tyler did this to punish her mom and make her feel like she can't do anything or she's she's being punished for calling the police. She beat her up and then she called the cops when her mom didn't want to and to be like look look what you made me do look you're mm -hmm. gonna ruin my life you're ruining my life classic abuser 
Yeah, it's really sad. Like, she's in the background screaming at her, why won't you let me leave? And it's like, you're 14? That's the major reason, and you're not a real joy to be around, so think about that, dear. Yeah, she... It was just really sad. And to hear her mom at the end, she just sounded so sad and so scared. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, around this time, Tyler wrote a note to Joanne when Joanne would never receive. According to the book Star-Crossed Killers, it said, As much as you think I don't love you, I do. Not just because I'm your daughter, but because you are my best friend. Nothing I ever said to you in anger is true. I would never kill you or hate you. She went on to say she didn't feel loved and that if things didn't change, she would kill herself. Then she ended the note with snark. I'm sure that would make you happy. Well, it sounds like that whole note was filled with malarkey. She obviously wasn't her best friend, and she obviously would, in fact, kill her. And I don't think her mom would have been happy for a second if Tyler had killed herself. No. She obviously wanted her to have a good life. She's sitting there bleeding and doesn't want her daughter arrested. Mm Mm-hmm. It's horrible. And Tyler was trying to push her into a corner where she could do what she wanted, and her mom wouldn't have the power to stop her. Yeah, I mean, all she was doing was being manipulative. Mm Mm-hmm. She was. Well, Tyler and Boston continued to sneak around and have sex. In fact, Joanne would take time from work to take her daughter to summer school, and Tyler would wait until her mom turned the corner in the car, and she'd run get in Boston's car where he was hiding and waiting. She and Boston decided Joanne's threat was empty. No one was going to arrest Boston for statutory rape, or it would have happened by now, right? Tyler could be with Boston any time she wanted. This is why 14-year-olds need to be careful because they don't think things through. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to. And eventually, if you're doing something bad, you're going to be caught. Well, when you're 14 years old, you don't know enough to think things through. You don't have the life experience. And I think that's really hard, and they both seem to be under this delusion that they're special. They've really romanticized a very dark and unhealthy relationship. One where a little girl has been turned to drugs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, she's being used sexually by an adult. And of course her mother is upset, and of course her mother is going after her. I mean, she's trying to protect her daughter. Mm-hmm. She was. And she wasn't done. Joanne wasn't done at all. She was firm in that resolve to protect Tyler. And she knew that they were sneaking around. Not enough evidence to keep Boston away from Tyler. Joanne said, hold my beer. And she went looking for what could be deemed adequate evidence of statutory rape. And guess what she found? Tyler's diary, because... Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) 14-year-olds are dumb and write down every bad thing they've ever done. Yes, they do. And this diary was explicit and filled with dates and times and details. It was also laced with vitriol aimed at Joanne. One entry called Joanne insane and went on to say, I just wish she would die somehow, some way, and leave me the text in brackets f word deleted alone wow tyler was really a pretty hateful girl so obviously a diary that says i wish my mom would die is kind of scary but i'm sure she's not the only teenage girl who's ever written that 
Mm-hmm. Like, what is the warning sign that she's serious? That's something that's kind of difficult to figure out mm-hmm. and what we are actually working toward at the Parasite Prevention Institute. When gathering data on youthful parasite for research purposes, we collect information on a million variables. But three of the variables that are showing big red flags in this story, well, actually there are four. First is you've got a liar on your hands. Mm -hmm. The reason parents don't like kids who lie or adults don't like kids who lie is because usually that shows trouble. Mm-hmm. And you can back yourself into a corner with it. Right. And we do collect that data. But the three that I looked at here that really kind of stand out even more than the liar mm-hmm. is threatening a parent. And this is, did the child advise the parents of murderous intent? Did the child injure or beat or attempt to murder the parent in the past? Well, she's physically abused her mother. Mm-hmm. She's told her she wants her dead. She's written in her diary about it a lot Mm -hmm. and talked to her friends about it. Right. So I have an N of 362. So 362 youthful parasite offenders in this study. 61% of the youthful offenders threatened, menaced, or tried to kill their parent prior to the offense. We've talked about the five different types Mm -hmm. of kids who kill their parents. And this, these warning signs are all impacted differently by the type of kid you're dealing with, which is why it's so important to kind of pay attention to who the kid is. Mm-hmm. So if you have a child who is erratic or mission-oriented, this is a major warning sign. They're significantly more likely to menace, hurt, or threaten a parent prior to the murder. This is a significance of 0.001. That's really high, right? That means it's got a one in a thousand chance of being by chance. Okay. So it's very high. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So threatening a parent. So that's Uh, a pretty big one. mm Mm-hmm. Another one is voicing intent to others. Did the child tell others, parents not included, because that's when they threaten or menace, Mm -hmm. of their murderous intent? Has the child engaged an accomplice? If the child engages an accomplice, this is an automatic yes, because they've talked to someone and made plans. If they casually are telling their friends, I want to kill my mother, oh, I just want to kill her like Tyler was, Mm -hmm. this is a major warning sign for kids who fall into the erratic category. Every single kid in the erratic category voiced intent prior to the murder. Every single one. I'm going to bet right now that she's an erratic. She is. She behaves, like, just the way you describe her, I'd be like, wow, this kid is a mess, which is what I think of when I think of Mm -hmm. the erratics. And when you think of someone who's erratic, you think, oh, they're out of control. No, sometimes they're deeply in control, but they're using their erratic behavior to control. Mm -hmm. Which you see with a lot of partner violence, too. Mm -hmm. You do. I mean, this is all under the auspices of domestic violence, and you start seeing those connections. Yeah. But this is also likely to happen if the child falls into the alpha brat or the mission-oriented categories. Okay. Um, that makes sense because the alpha brats usually have an accomplice, and then mission-oriented, they're just getting their plan in place. That's right. These guys are also significantly more likely to manifest their behaviors at a less than point zero zero one probability. Wow. The third one... 
This one takes a minute to describe. So it's runaway or suicide. And most people go runaway, suicide. Those can't be one category. But they are because they're both leaving behaviors. Oh. So if they try to commit suicide, they're trying to leave. If they're trying to run away, they're trying to leave. So we are looking that at them combined as leaving behaviors. Okay? That puts that, why won't you let me leave, in a whole new light, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And we had 502 parasites in this study. 37% of the youthful offenders ran away from home or experienced suicidal ideation prior to the offense. That seems pretty low. It's less than half. It is. It's as significant as the others. Probability is at 0.001. But look, I'll show you. Look at this chart. And what do you see? Oh, wow. So most of the groups are not running away or attempting suicide, but the erratics, a strong majority of them are. The anarchists really know. The alpha brats, somewhat, but the erratics... It's a lot. Most definitely. And that's why you need to really look at the kid if you're predicting if the parents are in trouble. If you know what we know and you look at Tyler's life, her mother was in deep, deep trouble and no one really understood it. No, they were all focused on saving Tyler from this boy instead of saving Joanne from imminent death. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's why we think the Parasite Prevention Institute is important. Yeah, trying to understand what is really a scary sign is really important for not having this happen over and over again. It is. And people who are in the situation need to be able to say, oh, red flag. If you don't recognize the red flags, if you think it's all you abusing the kid and you're never abusing the kid and you think you're safe because you aren't abusing your child. Mm -hmm. That's not the truth. Right. And it's dangerous. It would be wonderful if it was as simple as don't abuse your children. Mm-hmm. I wish it were that. Yeah, the world is rarely that simple. No, it isn't. Anyway, back to our story. So now Joanne had the diary, the evidence she needed to keep Boston away from her daughter for good. But still she wavered. She really wanted to do what was best for her daughter, and she didn't want to destroy Boston's future. Yeah, it's hard to think about taking this explicit diary of your 14-year-old to the police. And it's hard to think about destroying a 19-year-old's future. Yeah, especially if he seems like he has some redeeming qualities. Mm Mm-hmm. So... She decided that if the kids would come clean and face the consequences of their choices, if Boston would truly stay away from Tyler, if Tyler would understand why that needed to happen, then she would keep that diary private. She shared her decision with the police, and they gave interviews one more try. And again, Tyler and Boston held fast that the crazy mother was the only problem here. So Joanne gave the diary to the police to support her allegations on Wednesday, June 10th. That is so hard because now she knows that this information that her daughter has written is probably going to become public knowledge. Mm -hmm. This is going to be part of a trial. People are going to read about these things that have happened to your daughter. And that's hard for a parent. 
and as necessary as it was, she also feels that she has breached her daughter's privacy. And parents hate to take their children's private mistakes and make them public because that also hurts your child's future in another way. Mm-hmm. And it's embarrassing and just very hard. Mm-hmm. But according to Joanne's work friends, Tyler had been beyond livid when she found out. In response to her tantrum, her mother had told her, when you've calmed down, we'll talk about it. So again, Joanne is the queen of calm. I don't know how she did it. Yeah, she's trying really hard to model that good parenting where you hold space for your children and you don't react to them with anger. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work for all children. No, there's no perfect parenting style, unfortunately. Well, because all kids are different. We have mm-hmm. five different kinds of kids, and if you treat them all the same, you get different outcomes. You mm-hmm. have to treat them differently if you want the same outcome. Anyway... C.C. testified after the murder that Tyler had called Boston on June 10th, and they'd had a long and intense telephone call. That was when Tyler told him that her mother had turned her explicit diary into the police. After the call, Boston threw up in the sink. He told C.C. that he thought maybe he had the flu, but she was pretty sure it was something in that phone call that had made him physically ill. Later that day, Maddie B. texted him saying Tyler was bad news, and as a friend, he needed to tell him to dump her before she ruined his entire life. He couldn't be a math teacher if he was on the sex offender registry. Boston told him it wasn't Tyler who was ruining his life, it was that Joanne Witt who was continuing to destroy his life because she wouldn't stop calling the police on him for having sex with her daughter. The sad thing is she really tried to give him an out. Like, if he would have just knocked it off, he wouldn't be in trouble. But he's mad at her for doing the only thing she could do as a parent and as a sane adult. Well, he struck a deal with her, and he's not keeping up his end of the deal, but he thinks that she's supposed to keep up her end of the deal. Let's make a deal. I have no intention of keeping my end of the deal, but I'm going to hold your feet to the fire on your end. And if you don't, you're insane. Mm-hmm. Well, it's bizarre. It is, and it tells you a little bit about who Boston is. Mm-hmm. Don't you think it's interesting that they've never texted each other, like she's calling him? Uh-huh. Well, this was in 2009, so I don't think it was because texting wasn't a thing. I wonder how much she was, at this point, trying to keep things off the radar. Probably. I mean, once she figured out oh, my diary is written evidence. Maybe she thought, I should Mm -mm. probably stop making that. Mm -mm. She started calling him before that. Really? She started that, so she was calling him even though she was writing in her diary? Why? Mm -hmm. I think she wanted to make sure that everything that was said between the two of them was off the record. Oh, okay. Like in case he wanted to show it to someone else? Right, because in 2009, most kids were texting all the time. Yeah, that's when um, they had all of those funny ads for the girl who could text a thousand words a minute or whatever. <laughs> that's right. I, I don't know if anyone remembers that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's kind. Of, there's a lot of things in here that are oddities, I think. Yeah. Anyway, on the morning of June 11th, so remember, that was on the 10th. Okay. Okay? So on the 10th, the notebook gets handed to the police. On the 10th, Tyler has a phone call that makes Boston throw up. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the morning of June 11th, Tyler called Boston and asked him to sneak over to her house. 
She'd meet him on the back porch. Tyler had suggested committing a Romeo and Juliet type suicide before, and Tyler told him at this meeting on the porch that it was time. They needed to commit a Romeo and Juliet style suicide so they could be together forever. I think that maybe she had not gotten far enough in school because Romeo and Juliet did not make a suicide pact. Nope. If she had just waited to do these insane things until she graduated from high school, she would have known better, right? She would have read the story. Yeah. (laughs) This was not a love story. That was a political tome. Yeah, and Romeo and Juliet didn't want to die for each other. They wanted to live together. Mm Mm-hmm. Just a little bit more romantic. Right. So, again, 14-year-old, way too young. Yeah. Well, Boston wasn't sure about that. Boston is 19. Yeah, he's a little bit older and goes, hmm, maybe Mm -hmm. I don't want to die. Mm Mm-hmm. He's head over heels in love with this girl, and he's willing to kill for her, but he's not sure he's ready for suicide. So she's spoken about committing suicide together several times, and on this day, she really pushes the idea until he agrees. And once he agreed, she said they needed to murder her mother first. See... That never makes sense to me. If you're going to kill yourself anyway, why take someone else down with you? Uh Uh-huh. She had kind of a lame-ass story to go with it, and he bought it. But it always is like that. Yeah. But she told him this again shows planning, booty bumper-style planning. Mm Mm-hmm. She told him they couldn't use a knife from the house, and she suggested he bring a knife along with him for the murder. And he agreed to it. Yeah, so he may be older, but he's not much wiser. These booty bumpers are pretty wise. <laughs> Boston's friend Dutch testified that on June 11th, the same day that they decided about the suicide and murder, Dutch had a cigarette break with Tyler. Tyler was going on and on about how she wanted her mother dead. He kind of laughed at her and called bullshit. He had a lot of emo friends and felt all of this talk about death Parental hatred and suicide was just that. All talk. Dutch called her on it, saying she'd be sad if her mother were dead. Tyler vehemently denied this, saying she would be genuinely happy-happy, not sad at all. It's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. So remember, Tyler lies. Tyler lies a lot. In fact, after she's been in prison, she gives an interview where she talks about the problem she has with lying. She's an inveterate liar. Mm -hmm. You've heard several of her lies throughout this episode. She told a lot of stories about things that happened the last day of Joanne's life. These stories tend to shine a good light on Tyler and support the lies she has told in the past. The stories are refuted by those in her life who remain alive today. As such, we will not be relaying the stories Tyler told regarding this period of time, because Tyler is an unreliable narrator. But do know this. There was no mention of alcohol in Joanne's system at autopsy. It's a terrible lie because it's a very easy one to check. Like, if you're an alcoholic, there's a lot of physical evidence. Again, a 14-year-old. Yeah. It's just sad. And a lot of people are still saying, oh, she was an alcoholic. It seems like a lot of times when it comes to a parent being murdered... People are willing to accept whatever the child says. Mm-hmm. And they are willing to 
think only bad things about the person who has died. Yeah. Anyway, since the eviction, Boston, like we said before, didn't visit Tyler's house through the front door. To do that, he would have had to enter through the security gate. Joanne would have known he was there. This is kind of hard to imagine. We'll put a picture of it up on our website. But their home is in a cul-de-sac, and the backyard of the home is on a road. Okay. Okay? And there's their house, and then another house, and then an adjacent school parking lot. Okay? Mm-hmm. And he, Boston would park in that parking lot at the school, go across the school's playground or field, mm-hmm. walk down the road a house and a half in length, to sneak into her house. Then he'd have to jump a fence there. It's a lot of effort to do something you really know you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was to avoid detection. This is what allowed him to visit Tyler while remaining under the radar. The night of the murder, June 11th, morphed into June 12th at midnight. Stephen had driven to the schoolyard on the 11th and waited approximately an hour for Tyler to signal for him. This is the only agreement they have between their stories of what went down that night. Ah. It's time for the finger pointing, right? Right. True love. (laughs) Tyler told her friends she'd snuck Stephen in the back way of the house after she had drugged her mother with a healthy dose of Vicodin, which she had slipped into her mother's drink. At trial, Tyler changes this to a dose of vitamins, Detectives said she actually had Valium, not Vicodin, in her system. Why would you slip someone vitamins to drug them? So (laughs) that you don't go to prison for drugging them? (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. Together, they snuck up the stairs and crept into Joanne's bedroom, Boston holding the knife he'd brought from work, Tyler holding a knife she'd taken from the kitchen. But... Tyler also told the investigators a third story, which I think is closer to the truth, so I'm going to interrupt myself to tell that one right now. (laughs) Tyler said Boston snuck up to the house after getting the all clear, and Tyler met him outside. They smoked a couple of cigarettes together and talked about the trip to San Francisco. Then Tyler told investigators she said, Okay, I'll go inside, you go upstairs, and then just go through the door. Her door is open which is different than the two of them creeping up the stairs like a couple of ninja turtles with knives in their hands, and probably closer to what most booty bumpers do. The guy is the hitman. For sure. So there is story one. Here's back to story two. So back to the story Tyler testified to in court, she claims she lost her nerve once the two of them had snuck up the stairs. She dropped her knife onto a cabinet top in the hall. Mm-hmm. But instead of stopping the murder, she placed her hands over her ears, closed her eyes, and hummed to block out the noise of her mother fighting for her life. That has to be some loud humming. Yeah, I don't think that's actually possible, but that's what she said. After the murder, Boston emerged from the room, his pants soaked in blood, She claims that at that point, she told Boston everything was going to be okay. Boston placed a Spongebob blanket over her mom. Tyler reminded him to pick up the knife he'd set down on the bed. He did so, leaving a bloody outline of it on the sheet. Well, why didn't she just pick it up herself? Fingerprints. Ah. She wanted to make sure only his fingerprints were everywhere. 
And it worked. It was just his fingerprints and just his DNA, right? Mm-hmm. Then they shut the bedroom window to ensure any future smells would not escape the house, and they turned on the air conditioner, and they left together. So she was remorseful? Well, I wouldn't go that far. What did she say about it? It's more about what she does and less about what she says. Regardless of what she said, we can turn down the volume and watch what she did next. Instead of stopping Boston or even calling an ambulance, she left with him. So I think you know my opinion regarding the verity of her claims of remorse. Yeah, that doesn't sound like someone who's guilt-stricken. Mm-mm. We're out of time for today, so next week we'll relay Boston's version of the murder, describe the teen's trip to San Francisco and their lame suicide attempt, and then we'll wrap up by telling you what happened in court. We'd like to thank Claire, Liz, Marcia, and Rebecca for joining us on our Patreon page. Welcome, welcome. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. If you're interested in doing something priceless to help our show, Please follow and review the Parasite Podcast wherever you listen. Follow the Parasite Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and share our show with two of your favorite podcast listeners. Those three things are incredibly valuable. And while you're at it, do it for another podcast you enjoy. We'd like to thank the Sacramento Bee, the Modesto Bee, the Reno Gazette Journal, My Life of Crime, Star-Crossed Killers by Robert Scott and Dream and Demon for a host of information and pictures that we used to bring you this episode. While we were creating and recording this episode, we were saddened to hear of the death of one of our favorite musical artists, Meatloaf. He was one of the greats, and we keep thinking about one of his songs, because if parents would play this song for their sons from, well, probably from birth forward, Mm -hmm. Perhaps we could interrupt the playbook moves used by booty bumpers. We thought we'd end our show with an excerpt from this song. This is for you, Meatloaf. And I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. This has been the Parasite Podcast. Good night, and always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes. We all fall down. <laughs>